0: morning, church. Good morning, those of you who are joining us online. Special welcome to you. Good morning, those of you who are joining us for the first time. I need to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty tired this morning, which is ironic because this is the month we set aside and we've been exploring this book together in, in small groups. And on Sunday mornings, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Now, this is not the church of John Mark Comer. This is the church of Jesus. So you'll be relieved to know that this is all rooted in the daily life and practices of Jesus. And you remember the grounding assumption that if we want to enjoy the life of Jesus, the life he promised, the life he described as full and abundant, then we need to be intentional about cultivating the lifestyle of Jesus. And so over these five weeks in October, we are digging into some of the practices of Jesus, some of his practical tools for for managing a life in the middle of a society and a culture that are obsessed with busyness and hurry. So it's ironic that I come to you this morning tired. After, after, after Sheldon gave such a beautiful message last week on on silence and solitude, I think it's just a reminder that that this is a constant daily struggle for this. Remember that great, that great quote from Corey Ten Boom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. Because the net effect is the same. Both of them cause a separation between you and God, between you and the people that you care about, between you and your own soul. And so we're trying to offer up to each other tools. And this morning, we're going to look at another one of the great tools that's embedded in the lifestyle of Jesus. Before we introduce it, though, uh, let's do a little bit of a discernment exercise. We're all at different starting points on this journey. I want you to try and narrow in on yours by thinking for a moment about this question. What is it that you desire most? Maybe that's changed over time. But but right now, in this moment of time, what do you desire most? This requires a level of of honesty, doesn't it? Uh, Because don't be too rushed in in saying, well, world peace, or intimacy in my marriage, or or just a, a great sense of closeness to God. If what you're really thinking is, I want a Vente from Starbucks, Or, you know, I've been obsessing about Sony's latest widescreen TV. Or You need to be honest. What what is it that you desire? Because desire is the great motivator of our lives. Desire is the engine that propels us to get out of bed in the morning, that drives us through the course of our day. And that's a good thing. But at any point, the desires in our life are no longer under our control, but instead are the driving force of our life, then we're in trouble. Because if you take a close look at at what's going on about the dynamics of desire, I think we have to acknowledge that at some level, desire is never fully satisfied. That's just the nature of what it is for us. And we've known this for a long time. As far back as 1,000 B.C., one of the writers of the Bible, Koaleth of, of the book of Ecclesiastes, said this, that the eye is not satisfied with seeing. That sounds a little bit confusing. Maybe you know the version that comes in the form of, a, of our more modern poets who said it quite simply, I can't get no satisfaction. It's just, it's never enough. One of the, the great towering intellects of the, the Middle Ages was a man named Thomas Aquinas. And, and he once asked that question. He said, what is it that would satisfy this, this pulsing sense of desire? What would it take to feel completely and fully satisfied? And this is the answer he came up with. One of the great minds of the history of the world. His answer, everything we would have to experience everything and everybody. And we'd want to be experienced by everything and everybody. Eat at every restaurant, travel to every country, experience every natural wonder, make love to every partner we ever desired, win every award, climb to the top of every profession, own every item available in the world. We'd have to experience all of it in order to feel fully satisfied. Now, sadly, we... We know that's impossible. I mean, even if you had unlimited funds, we still we have these nasty little limits on our lives, like space—where like do you put all the stuff—and time. There just isn't enough time. And what all of these poets and and prophets and teachers are tapping into is the reality that even though desire is infinite, there are no limits there. We are not. And so if you want it in a mathematical formula, here it is. Infinite desire minus a finite soul. And what do you get? You get restlessness. This chronically unsatisfied way of living. It's like like an itch, and it never goes away. And the harder you scratch it, the worse it gets. No matter how much we see or do or buy or sell or experience, there's always something in us that craves a little bit more. And so the question for those of us who, who are trying to attach ourselves to the life of Jesus and be disciples, apprentices of him, is what do we do with all of that desire, with all of the restlessness? Well, the teachings, the tradition of Jesus, they would offer up this answer, that human desire is infinite Because we were made ultimately to desire above all else a God who is infinite. It will take all eternity to to even begin to explore the wonders, the vastness, the beauty of who God is and what God has made. That, That the only satisfaction to that relentless, restless drive and desire in our lives is found when we attach it to its only one proper Object, And then you place everything else in its place. Uh, The the most famous way of putting this, I think one of the most memorable phrases describing God outside of the Bible itself was written by St. Augustine around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. He said, and many of you have heard this before, he said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. One of the writers that we've been following a little bit through the series is Dallas Willard. Listen to how he put it. He said, desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God and we were made for God and we were made to need God and we were made to run on God. Isn't that great? We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all of our needs. We are only at home in God. And when we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains. But it gets displaced by all of these other things that certainly lead to destruction. You see, when when whether it's a choice or or, or just through indifference or busyness, when when God is displaced from primary position in our lives, the desire don't go the desires, desires don't go away. They just They get siphoned off into a hundred, a thousand other things. The result, this chronic condition of restlessness. Or even worse, a life filled with angst and anger and disillusionment. And all of it, I think, is the fuel that that propels us in this life of busyness and, and overload and materialism and careerism. And that, in turn, just feeds into itself. This vicious cycle. Now, as if, as if that weren't challenging enough, all of that is, is rooted in our nature, what it means to be human beings. We also have the predicament of living in the midst of a culture at a time in history when all of this gets ratcheted up by the marketing industry. With its obsession with the twin gods of accumulating things and accomplishing stuff. Advertising, at its most basic level, is an attempt to monetize our restlessness. You you feel disillusioned, restless, lacking, filled with desire? Try this. It will fulfill your heart's dream. Of course, it never does. We see upwards of 4,000 ads a day, every day all intended to stroke that sense of desire. Buy this, do this, eat this, drink this, have this, watch this, be this. In a book on the Sabbath, Wayne Mueller said, it's as if we have inadvertently stumbled into some horrific wonderland. And once again, you're thinking, boy, I'm glad I made the effort to come to church this morning. I felt tired before, now I feel lousy. Uh, Is there a practice from the life and the teachings of Jesus that can address that kind of chronic restlessness in our culture, that that can tap into what Jesus promised, rest for our souls? I hope you know the answer. The answer is yes. In fact, there's several of them, but we're going to look at just one today, the one that I think is at the top of the list. Today, we look at the subject of Sabbath. Sabbath. You've heard the word before? It's not really an English word. It comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. In fact, if you have Jewish friends and you see them on a Saturday, you might want to greet them with their traditional Sabbath greeting, Shabbat Shalom. Peace of the Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom, brother. Shabbat Shalom. The word Shabbat means literally to stop, to cease. And so the Sabbath is a day to stop. Stop working, stop wanting, stop worrying, just stop. What I'd like to show you, um, and again, this is just helping to gauge our starting point. We all start somewhere, is a pair of lists, descriptions. And you may identify with one side of the list more than the other. It won't be consistent all the way up and down, but but I want you to, to get a feeling for what the challenge is, and then we'll address what the opportunity is, the solution. So, so here's the list. Which better describes you at this stage in your life? In your life, Is it restfulness or, or, or restlessness? Do you feel like your life has enough margin in it? Again, margin is the room between your capacity, everything you can do, and, and your schedule, everything that you've decided you will do. And sometimes our schedule is bigger than our capacity. You have no margin. And sometimes our schedule is smaller and there's margin. Do you have margin? Or is your life just always busy? Would you describe your life as one of slowness or hurry? Does your life have quiet to it? Or is it surrounded constantly by noise? Would you say as you think about the relationships of your life that yeah there are a few key deep relationships that are important to me and 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 i'm spending time cultivating them or are all of your relationships superficial and you feel pretty alone isolated in the world do you have time alone and that's not just for introverts extroverts introverts both do you have time alone or is your life always crowded in with people and activities do you feel a sense of delight can you really enjoy the world god has made and the 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 life he has given to you or is it a life of constant distraction is there joy in your life when you look at the things god has entrusted to you can you enjoy them Or are you obsessed only at looking the things that you don't have that your neighbor has, and I want that car in my driveway. My heart will not be settled until that happens. Is there clarity in your life? I understand who I am. I understand why I am. I understand the purposes God has for me. Or is it just a state of confusion? The list kind of goes on. Is there gratitude in your life? Or is it driven more by greed? Is there contentment? Or do you find yourself discontented a lot of the time? Are you a trusting person? Or is your life filled with worry? Is there love, both the ability to give it and receive it, or the antithesis of love, anger or angst or just indifference? Do you have room for joy? Or is your life one of melancholy and sadness? Is there peace in your life? Or do you live in a constant state of anxiety? And don't miss these last two, because we do spend a sizable portion of our lives at work. Do you work out of a posture of love? God has given me something to do, and I love to give it back. Or do you work in order to achieve and receive love? The adulation of other people. Do you work because you're making a contribution to God's world or do you work because you need to accumulate for the sense of your own pride, status, and and position? Again, you will drift more to one side of the list than the other. And if if those attributes in column B, if, if you resonate more with those things, this is not meant to be a guilt trip. Again, human nature, living in our age, a digital age, an advertising age, this is a foreboding, a formidable alliance against a spirit of real restfulness. So it's no wonder that when the writer of Hebrews starts talking about the Sabbath and and this spirit of rest, this is what Hebrews 4.11 says, you ought to make every effort to enter into that rest, to keep the Sabbath. and Note the irony of the words. You need to work hard to rest well. This doesn't just happen. You need to work at resting. There is a discipline to the Sabbath, and it's not easy. It's, it takes intentionality. It doesn't just happen. You plan for it. You prepare for it. It takes self-control because you have to say no to a list of good things in order to say yes to the best thing that one thing. And Sabbath is God's primary discipline, the primary practice in which we cultivate this spirit of restfulness in our lives. Walter Brueggemann, great Old Testament scholar, has this line. He says, you know, people who keep Sabbath, they live all 7 days differently. It's true. Watch out for the Sabbath. It will mess with your life. It will start with messing with your Sabbath day, but then it starts messing up all the other days in the best of all possible ways. Is it any wonder then that Sabbath is woven right into the the practices, the, the rhythms of the life of Jesus? Let me just show you one example. It's the text that Hannah read for us this morning. So imagine this, lazy Saturday afternoon. You're out hiking in the meadow with some friends and, and on one side is the, the, the grassy meadow and the other side is a cornfield. And as you're walking along, you're just plucking at a few of the, uh, of the kernels and you're talking and this was, this was the situation for Jesus and his friends or followers. This was a core practice. They spent an entire day together just to set aside time and refocus, just to slow down And Now, on this particular Sabbath, Jesus got into trouble with the religion police, the scholars. I mean, they they didn't like the way Jesus was practicing Sabbath. You see, in their mind, there were tons of rules for the Sabbath. Sabbath was more about checking the right boxes than it was entering into a time of, of real intimacy with God and God's world. And they'd missed, really, the purpose, the heart of it. And in what I think is kind of a loving rebuke, Jesus said, and this is the key verse for today, Mark 2.27, you know, the Sabbath was made for us. Not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. It's not this heavy legal weight that God drops on us. What a stunning idea. Yet yeah, thousands of years later, we're still trying to learn exactly what he means. What's the context? Again, Jesus pushing back against the religious police of the day, those who would just load up people with a guilt-heavy list of things that had to be done and missed the Father's heart behind why you want to spend a day slowing down. Translation, this is a culture that's almost completely the opposite of ours. First century Jews, they needed to hear the second half of what Jesus said. This is not a man-made thing. Not a heavy weight. They had it backwards, you know, cart before horse. But if you think about our century, the problem isn't that we are legalistic about Sabbath imposing lots of rules. The problem is it's not even on our radar. Most of us don't practice Sabbath. A day off, maybe, if we can manage it. Sunday worship, when I can, if I can get here. But few of us really know what Sabbath is all about. And so as as John Mark Comer argues in this little book, 21st century North Americans, they need to hear the first half of the command. The Sabbath was made for us. It was designed by God himself, and it is for us. It's a gift to enjoy from the one who created all that is." And in this kind of iconic one-line teaching, Really what Jesus is doing is tapping into a practice that it turns out is as old as the earth itself. A practice that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. You you remember the the opening line in the story of God, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yay, God. And then after six days of of work, getting the universe up and running, we read the following, Genesis 2, verses 2 to 3. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Why? Because it was on the seventh day that he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Did you catch that? God rested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, for me, I'm an extrovert. I'm busy. I like to be. I like to be doing stuff. God rested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you don't know the job that I do, the demands that are on me. I just I can't make it through the week by taking that much time off. God rested. But pastor, you don't know what my life is. I got young kids and a busy home. It's not doable. Maybe later on. Do we need to say it again? God rested. And in so doing, he builds a rhythm into creation itself, a temple, a syncopated rhythm. Six days of work, one day of rest. And when we fight against the rhythm, it's like we're fighting against the grain of the universe, and as, as one philosopher, a man named H.H. H. Farmer said, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. How many of you feel like you got a few splinters? And I've heard people laugh this off, this call to Sabbath, with cliches like, you know, the devil never takes a time off. Idle hands, you know, make for the devil's playground. Yeah, well, last time I checked, the devil loses in the end, and who are we to be modeling our practices after the devil anyway? The last time a society tried to abandon this rhythm, the seven-day work week, happened during the French Revolution. They switched to a 10-day work week in order to increase productivity. You know what happened? Disaster. The economy crashed. Suicide rates skyrocketed. Productivity plummeted. I mean, it's been proven. Study after study, there is zero connection between hurry and productivity. In fact, Once you work a certain number of hours a week, once you exceed that threshold, your productivity actually goes down. You want to know what the number is? 50. 50 hours. It sounds conspicuously like six days of activity, one day of rest. In fact, one study found that there was zero difference in productivity between workers who logged 70 hours a week and those who logged less than 55? I mean, could it be that God is speaking to us through our bodies themselves? The point is that this isn't some, some clever idea, the, the product of human ingenuity. This is the brilliant mind of God. Offering us something that has been designed into our bodies and our souls and is meant to be part of society so we can flourish and we can thrive. And if you fight it, you're fighting God. And if you're fighting God, you're fighting your own soul. Let's think for a minute about what that word means. God rested. What does it mean to say that God rested? Was he burned out? Exhausted? I mean, he was omnipotent, but he used up too much. Again, that Hebrew word "Shabbat," to stop." It also gets translated to delight, to rejoice. And it has those two meanings sort of woven together, that you stop and delight in the world that God has made and in our lives in it, and above all, in God Himself. It's not just stopping, it's to stop and delight. So if you're new to this, to the idea of Sabbath, you've heard the word, but the practice of Sabbath maybe a good question to, to shape your understanding of what this might look like for you. What could you do for 24 hours that would fill your soul with a deep rejuvenating joy that would flood you with wonder and awe and gratitude and praise? What could you do? And the way that you answer that, I think, will begin to give shape to a life spent in the Sabbath rhythms of work and rest. I want you to to notice what, what God says about Sabbath. Genesis 2, verse 3. All of this, again, is rooted in God. He rested. He stopped. He sets aside an entire day just to delight in the world that He's made. Genesis 2:3, God blessed that day, the seventh day, and He made it holy. Two things worth noting: blessed and holy. Blessed and holy. In the Genesis story of the making of the world, there are three things that God blesses. First, He, he makes the animal kingdom. And and he gives this invocation. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the world with life. And then he does the same thing with human beings. Same injunction. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the world with more life. And then curiously, he blesses a day, the Sabbath. And we wonder, well, what is going on here? I mean, it makes sense. Animals, human beings, we procreate, we make life. Sabbath has the same purpose. It brings life. It procreates. It it brings life to us. It brings life to the world. Life is tiring. I mean, we know that. You get to the end of the week, and even if you love your job, you're still worn out on every level, physically exhausted, emotionally, spiritually. The Sabbath is how we bring life back to our souls. That's what it means when God says the Sabbath is blessed. What does it mean to say the Sabbath is holy? I mean, this, this would have been a strange thing for those who first heard these words. How is a day holy? Because they had this idea that, that the only thing holy are places, that God was confined to specific spaces. You wanted to find God, you went to a holy temple or a holy mountain or a holy shrine. God was there. But this, this understanding of God, the one true God, the creator, God is not confined to a space, but he's there in the moments of life. You want to go and spend time with God, you don't have to make pilgrimage to Mecca or Varanasi or Stonehenge. You just set aside moments, particularly this, you Shabbat. You spend a day stopping long enough to experience him. Let him capture your attention again. A day that's blessed and a day that's holy. And if you fight against that rhythm, and there were days this week when when I feel like I was fighting against it, you reap the consequences. Mentally, you get lethargic and numb and uncreative. I call it muddle-headed. I say, Karina, I'm feeling muddle-headed. And usually that means that there wasn't enough stop time. You reap the consequences emotionally. You, you become irritable or cynical or, overwhelmed, and just it leaks out of you in ways that none of us want to see. And we feel it physically. Our bodies get worn out. And doctors are the first to say that that our immune systems crash under the weight of this relentless pace of life. And so we get one cold after another. We're, We're always sick. We're always getting knocked down. And yet we try and push through until eventually we crash, And something in our body or our minds just snaps. And then we wind up flat on our back. Have you been there? You've been there in those moments? Maybe that's why God eventually has to take Sabbath, which is a gift to his people, and also rephrase it as a command. Not just, I invite you to do this. You need to do this. You should do this. The Bible has a lot of commands about Sabbath, but I just want to show you one. I think it might be the most important one. Exodus chapter 20. If you know Exodus 20, you know this is where you find the 10 commandments. So this is one of the big 10. Exodus 20 verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Don't miss the opening word. Remember. Remember, because it's so easy to forget. There's a day that's blessed and holy because all the other days we get sucked into the rhythm and pace of life and get ratcheted up notch after notch to something that's just short of insanity. And we forget. Creator. Not me. Creation. That's me. And then we We remember that life comes as a gift. We remember to take time and and delight in what God has made. Remember to be present in the moments and, and not miss what God has for us. Humans, we are prone to amnesia. And so God commands us first to remember. He goes on, Exodus 20, verses 9 and 10. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. On the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It could also be, uh, be, be translated set aside for the Lord your God or dedicated to the Lord your God. So the Sabbath is it's not just a day for rest. It's also a day for worship, a day for the Lord your God. And by worship, I don't just mean coming to church and doing some singing. I mean, that's a good place to start. Great singing today. It was wonderful. But I, I mean a life that is wholly oriented towards God. And take note here, because this next point is really crucial, and this slayed me when I first grappled with it. The Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. The Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. What's the difference? A favorite writer of ours around here, a man named Eugene Peterson, had a name for a day off. He called it a bastard Sabbath. The illegitimate stepchild of the seventh day and Western culture. On your day off, you don't work for your employer, hopefully, but you still work. And you run errands, and you catch up on housework, and you pay the bills, and you run out to Ikea, and four hours later, you emerge again. And maybe you play a little bit, and kick a soccer ball around, or go shopping, or cycle through the city, and great stuff. I love my day off. But those activities alone don't make a Sabbath the Sabbath, the focus is on two things, rest and worship. And notice how how broad the words are, rest and worship. Broad enough that they accommodate all kinds of interpretation and understanding, depending on your personality and your stage of life. Sometimes people hear worship, and again, they think that means singing praise songs, reading the Bible, practicing intercessory prayer, do all that stuff, good stuff. But it's something bigger than that. You could, and this is John Mark Comer's suggestion, expand the list of spiritual discipline to include things like eating a burrito on the patio and being thankful abundantly for the experience, sharing a cup of coffee with your friends over a long, lazy dinner, walking on the beach with your lover or your best friend, but anything, Comer says, that can index your heart towards a grateful recognition of God's reality and God's goodness. All my life he has been faithful, as we sang. And then the command ends, Exodus 20, with giving us the motivation, the why. Verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea, everything in them, and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Do you know This teaching about Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that seems to require an explanation. At least it's the only one where God gives it. He doesn't say, don't murder, and here's why that's a bad idea, or don't steal, and it's not good, and here's why. This is the only place where he draws our attention back again to the rhythms of creation and explains why. In fact, this is the only one of the the spiritual disciplines, the tools that makes an appearance in the Ten Commandments. I think it's important. The Sabbath, it feels to me kind of like guerrilla warfare or a guerrilla warfare tactic. For how do you fight against the oppressive yoke of a society when it's all around us and it's obsessed with speed and accomplishment and accumulation? The answer? Sabbath. It's, it's like a governor on the speed of life. Those of you who are in the automotive industry, you know a governor is something you place on your vehicle that prevents you from exceeding a certain speed. So most of our trucks now have governors that say, you can't go more than 110 kilometers an hour, even if you want to. This is like a governor on our lives. All week long, we work, we cook, we clean, we shop, exercise, answer a bazillion email and text messages. We inhabit the modern world, but we hit a limit. And on the seventh day, we slow down. Actually, we come to a full stop. The Sabbath is a governor on the speed of life. And then finally this. The Sabbath is not meant to be a heavy weight placed on God's people. It's a gift, an invitation, and it's all about about freedom. Freedom from the need to do more and get more and be more free from the spirit, that that evil, that demonic spirit of, of restlessness that just enslaves our society. We are free to live under another spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and enjoy that restful calm that can settle over us. It's what Jesus promised. When you yoke yourself to me, you will find that that shared life together is easier. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in the end, maybe we find that life with God is enough. Join me in praying that it might be so. Once again, Lord, as we've been praying for these past few weeks, pray that you would slow us down, capture our attention. Allow us to see beyond the things that consume so many of our waking moments to the wonder of the world that you have made and the greater wonder of who you are as a creator, father, savior, companion, as the hope of our lives. God, we want to rest in that. We want to rest in Jesus. I pray this week that there would be lots of experiments going on throughout the family of God in this place as we Try and work out how that can look for us, what it could mean for us. But but God, in the end, the desire is the same. We want to work in lives that are productive and fruitful and honoring to you. But we want to rest in a way that is equally fruitful and honoring to you and good for the health of our own souls. Jesus, let it come. We pray in, in your name. Amen.